<clears throat> this morning is a little bit different sermon, um, and you notice I didn't read up front. I have chosen a larger text this morning that we will walk through together, uh, but, so I'll read that as we go. But one of the, the, the thing that has inspired this sermon this morning is, is a thing that I see happening all the time um, on Facebook and in other ways. Um, I want to bring up a verse for you and have you look at it. Psalm 92.10. Psalm 92.10. I'm seeing Psalm 92.10 pop up on Facebook. And so what, what you'll normally see is some... Somebody will post, maybe they've cleaned it up, they put it on a meme, they put colors behind it, and just, just this verse, they'll post and it says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. And then they'll claim that and say, No evil shall come to my house. No plague shall come to my house. It's just a yanking of a verse and making a proclamation of that verse. But what is missing when we do that? When we, when we just take a verse out of, out of context, and there's your answer, and we placard it, we, we have ripped it out of its context. What's missing is its context. What we are doing is what... I've playfully begun to call yank and claim. You've heard name it and claim it and, and things like that, a lot of that flowing out of what we call the prosperity gospel. But we yank, we yank verses out of context and then we claim them as promises. Now, certainly there's nothing wrong with standing on God's promises in His Word. Rightly interpreted, we need to own His promises, believe His promises, not interpret reality on the basis of our circumstance, but on what His Word says. But there was a key thing to what I said there, rightly interpreted. We must always be working to rightly interpret the Word of God. And most people, when they yank Psalm 91.10 out of context and a lot of other verses, have done no work to rightly interpret. It's just sort of this cafeteria-style Bible interpretation. You walk through the cafeteria line, you grab a verse here, you grab a verse there, and you cobble it together to support something most times that you already believe and want to support. But Psalm 91.10 is not a blanket promise that no evil or no plague, no suffering, no sickness, no death will ever touch the life of a Christian. So what we are missing when we do that, see, I can take, think of Psalm 14. From Psalm 14.1, I can quote Scripture to you and say, there is no God. Scripture says, there is no God. And I'm not lying. If you go read Psalm 14.1, you'll see that's part of the verse. But the rest of the verse is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And just like Psalm 14 has a context, Psalm 91 has a context, a large context of the context of the entire Word of God, uh, a context of the book of Psalms, a context of the, the writer and the author and the psalm itself, Psalm 91. And so if you look at Psalm 91, you'll see that, uh, that in verse 8, the, the, the evil and the plague that is befalling, what the, what the person is pointing to and what they're seeing is the recompense of the wicked. So it's God's judgment being poured out on an evil world that the believer is promised to be protected from 
in that psalm. It's not all evil that will, will come. In fact, if you look in Psalm 91, uh, you'll see in verse 15 that one of the promises there is, I will be with him in trouble. So not that all trouble will be removed from the righteous person's life, but that the righteous person will not experience the direct judgment of God on a sinful world. See, verse 10 is, 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 is speaking of that sort of judgment. It's not talking about the frequent trials that we go through, the fallen world that we live in. It's speaking of harm that comes from to God's enemies from His judgment. And we know that believers will never experience that kind of, of suffering because Christ has taken it for us, and we'll talk about that more later. So Psalm 91.10 is not a blanket promise that nothing bad will ever happen to believers. Listen, if so, God would have to apologize to Abel. I mean, after the fall, one of the first righteous people who ever lived was murdered by his wicked brother because he was righteous. How about Joseph? Look at all the suffering Joseph went through and how God shaped him through that suffering. See, it wasn't a, God doesn't promise that righteous people will never have suffering in their life. What about Job? God himself testifies that Job was a righteous person. And look what all happened in Job's life. And it was serving God and, and his purpose. Tough things, hard things, things that are hard to understand, and Job struggled with that. But it wasn't because he was unrighteous. He was righteous, and those things happened to him. It wasn't because he didn't have enough faith. And I'm not going down, far down that trail right now. Think about John the Baptist, none greater than he among the Old Testament prophets and people. And he was beheaded by Herod. So I think evil did visit him, but God made it work for his good to live as Christ, to die as gain. Think about the apostles. You know, 11 out of 12 martyred. They weren't placarding this as some sort of blanket promise that no suffering would touch the life of the Christian. Think about famous Christians like John Owen who had, I think, 11 children and 10 of them didn't make it to adulthood. I'd pause on that. Think about that. How difficult that would be. We freak out when there's no toilet paper. Spurgeon with his gout and all of his difficulties. All of the martyrs and the people that are being martyred today, faithful Christians who are being locked up and persecuted and martyred. And even faithful brothers and sisters in the church, some we know of in our own fellowship, who love God and are serving God and are suffering with things like brain tumors and heart problems and all sorts of other, other afflictions. And, and that doesn't mean they don't have enough faith or they haven't ripped the right verse out of context. It means that they're living in a fallen world and suffering some of the common misery that everyone suffers in a fallen world. But they're victorious in it because of Christ and the gospel. And we'll see that. So we must interpret all verses in light of their context. Psalm 91.10 is not a blanket promise that believers will never suffer or a promise that they can claim so they will never suffer. When we take a verse out of its context like that, we turn a truth into a lie. 
and a promise into a problem. So we need to always make sure we are interpreting God's word in context. And as I saw that happening, as I thought about what to preach this week, what kept coming to my mind was Romans 8. And I know I'm constantly telling you, please read Romans. Please understand Romans. But Romans, as well as other places in Scripture, and Romans doesn't contradict Psalm 91.10 when we rightly understand both of them. Romans gives us a proper theology of suffering. An understanding of its purpose, of an understanding of when it will end. And in, in chapter 8, we will, we will see that. See, suffering reminds us that all is not right with the world. There's a problem. The misery that we see all around us is because of sin. Now, don't go blaming people who suffer that it's because of their personal sin that they have a sickness. That's becoming Job's counselors. But in general, all the misery that we see is because of sin. And someday it will be removed. See, this world is not our home. Something much better is coming. And that's why I wanted to look briefly uh, at Psalm, uh, not at Psalm, at Romans 8 this morning. And again, this is a different kind of sermon. This is a big text. There's a lot here. There's no way I can preach the second half of Romans 8 thoroughly this morning. But I think in light of what I'm trying to address, the misuse of Scripture with, with, with verses like Psalm 91.10 and showing you to compare Scripture with Scripture and showing you as Paul lays out for the believer how he addresses suffering and shows how it points forward for us, I thought it would be a good idea to do that. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that Paul introduces himself. He gives a summary, sort of introduction in chapter 1, and then proclaims that the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes is the gospel. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, halfway through chapter 3, he's laying out the sin problem, the sin, the sin of the Jew and the sin of the Gentile. And then beginning in verse 20 of chapter 3 and going forward through through um, in, into chapter 5, we have justification by faith alone. And then in picking up in chapter 6 on through chapter 8, we have growth in grace or what we call sanctification. And this, this section that I'm looking at this morning falls within that section of our growth in grace or our sanctification. You know chapter 8, I won't read the whole chapter, but it begins with there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's Word does promise no condemnation. But if I want you to go back and read that because I'm going to pick up a little bit later in the chapter in verse 16 and we're going to work through the end of the chapter as we look at this text. And again, I'm going to read it as we go just in a, an attempt to save a little bit of time because this is a lot to deal with. And again, I'm, I'm bouncing across the surface this morning. I'm going to press in a little bit in a few places and then hopefully one day we'll come back and study through the book of Romans and we'll deal with this in more detail. But as we look at verses 16 through 39, and as we see, I titled this Groaning and Glory. It's what we see here in the text. The main point I want us to come away with is we have hope in the midst of our suffering. We have hope in the midst of our groaning. Because for us, suffering is temporary and we are eternally loved. We have hope in the midst of our groaning because for us, suffering is temporary and we are eternally loved. We need to know those things. We need to know and everything, interpret everything in light of the gospel. But we need to know that the suffering is temporary, that it has a purpose, 
that it will fulfill all of God's purpose. And someday it will go away because he will take it away. But we need to know in the midst of our struggle in this world that we are deeply loved by God. But first, first look with me. Hope in God because your suffering is temporary. Your suffering is temporary because in, ver- in chapter 8, after telling there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because what he suffered, that, that he has purchased for us a full and free salvation, that he works in us to walk for, and according to his glory because we've been filled with his spirit. We're debtors to live by the spirit and not in the flesh. The spirit testifies to our adoption as sons. And in verse 16, he says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. We're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. See, what I'm going to say this morning, and my main, I'm mainly speaking to believers. When, I, when we talk about this suffering with Christ. And when we talk about verse 18, what Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. I'm talking to believers. This is as bad as it'll ever get in this world. This world is as bad as it will ever get for believers. But for the unbeliever, if you're not trusting in Christ, I warn you, this is as good as it'll ever be for you. Grab all the gusto you can get. You'll only go around once. Party like, well, you can't say it's 1999 because that's already come and gone. But this is as good as it'll get. And what you need to do is recognize that you have a sin debt with God, that He is righteous and holy, and that you fall short of His glory, that you haven't kept His law in thought, word, and deed. We haven't loved Him naturally. We don't live for Him naturally. We sin against Him. We violate His word and His law. And the wages of that is death spiritual and physical death, separation from God, no hope in and through death and in the life to come, condemnation and judgment. See, the opposite of what we said in verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The opposite of that is there is condemnation because of sin for those who are not in Christ Jesus. So this morning I would pray that you would hear that that God would have been at work in your heart to humble you, that you would receive that and believe in Christ and turn and trust in Him so that you too then can embrace the things that we're going to talk about from Romans 8. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I just want you to know this, these truths I'm speaking for and to believers this morning primarily. But look what he says in, in verse 18. The sufferings of this present time. Notice what it doesn't say. There is no suffering for the believer in this present time. No, 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 no. Paul says, the suffering that we endure now, the suffering of this present time, notice it's for this present time, and it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
So he's real. God's word is real. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trial, trouble, tribulation, suffering. But be of good cheer. I've overcome it for you. Think it not strange when the fiery trial assaults you. Even Paul, with his troubles that he had, God said his grace was sufficient. His power was made perfect in weakness. God didn't take all Paul's troubles away. He just humbled him and empowered him and encouraged him in his grace and empowered him by his spirit. See, the sufferings of this present time include all suffering. Notice that. The sufferings of this present time for the believer, this is just a general category. It includes all suffering. It will end someday. But it includes, yes, it includes suffering because of persecution. And we see that around the world. It includes what we see in the life of Paul as we go through Acts. It includes what happens to us. We can be sure that if we're going to live faithfully for Christ, we will be persecuted in some form by somebody. Not everybody likes the gospel. So this includes suffering for living for Christ, but it also includes the suffering that comes along with living in a fallen world, the common miseries that we share. If you look at, verse, at Revelation 21, when God is making all things new, the new heavens and the new earth are coming, that's when he puts an end to suffering. That's when he said, there'll be no more pain. Go look at, at Revelation 21.4. I'm not bringing that up this morning. But go look in Revelation 21 and start reading that and you'll see that then when he makes all things new, he takes away death and sorrow and pain and sickness and all of the misery of sin. But until then, everybody goes through suffering and believers included go through what Paul calls the sufferings of this present time. See, in the new heavens and the new earth, new creation, when it's consummated, when it's finished, the work is finished, There then will be no more sin, therefore there will be no more misery. But until then, we have hope in the midst of the sufferings of this present time. And look what he says. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy worthy comparing or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So yes, we have suffering and we go through some hard stuff now. And believers go through some really hard things in this world. And it's not because they're faithless and it's not because they're sinful and it's not because enough enough people aren't praying for them or they haven't claimed the right promise. It's just that part of the mystery of life in this world, it includes suffering even for the believer. But he he says, this is insignificant compared to the glory that will be ours. When Christ returns, when we're with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It is hard, but it is small in comparison. See, this present time includes suffering. Listen to me. There is no way for you to get around that. You can send all the money you want to to your favorite health and wealth preacher and please don't do that. And some days are better than others, and some seasons are better than others. And and suffering in this life looks different for all of us, and and there's spiritual suffering and physical suffering. But listen, it, it is part of this present time. And I know this won't fill a basketball arena, but this is the truth of God's Word. The sufferings of this present time are significant 
especially in light of the reference point that we have. See, to us, this life is, seems long at times. The older you get, the shorter it seems. But, and it seems big because we, a lot of times we can't look past the pain. And what we need to do is get the truth of God between us and the pain so that we can rightly interpret it. But Paul says, listen, this is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. So the biblical principle is here at least uh, groaning before glory or suffering before glory. Suffering then glory. I mean, you see it in the lives of all the saints. You see it in Jesus especially. Man of sorrows, what a name. Or the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to be claimed. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Suffering then glory. Look in verses 19 to 21. All right, about the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us when Christ comes. For the creation, now watch this, there's an important word here. For the creation with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When will that happen? That's when Jesus returns. And the creation looks forward to that to be set free. Look, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, to decay, to corruption, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, God is working out his plan of redemption in the midst of his creation. And that is taking his people and his creation through time of corruption and futility. It says not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, it's not hopeless and it's not purposeless. It's, it has a point, which is the glory of God in Christ Jesus and the salvation of his people. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, there's coming a time when the creation will be set free from corruption and when the Christian will be set free from corruption, when glorification will be a reality. There'll be no more sin, so there'll be no more suffering, and the gospel will have gone to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language, and they will be a people from all of those places and peoples around his throne rejoicing in his name for his salvation. So the suffering of this present time, the creation being subjected to what we call decay or corruption or what it calls futility, is temporary and it has a purpose that God is working out in His creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Kind of saying the same thing is said in Romans 8. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, we believe God's word and we interpret this present struggle in light of what God has said and what God has promised. And we do that by interpreting his word rightly. Not, because if we, think, if we think our lives should have no suffering, we're going to live a life of frustration. We're going to send a lot of people money that we shouldn't send. They're going to live the rich on rich life, and you're going to be broken suffering. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, passing away. The things that are Unseen are eternal. God, His Word, His Gospel, His Son, the coming reality of the new heavens 
and the new earth. This is just a taste, but you can see here that the sufferings of this present time are temporary. Glory is coming. Yes, there is futility and corruption and suffering and struggle in the creation, but we are going somewhere, and that will be over when the glory of the children of God is revealed when Christ returns. But for now, for now we groan. Look at this. This age is characterized by groaning. Check this out. Paul is, Paul is real about life. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation groans in birth pains until now. Look at verse 23, you see believers groan. In verse 26, you see the Holy Spirit groans. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Think about labor pains. What are labor pains? Well, they, they don't, they're not meaningless. They're not hopeless. They're not fun. And I've never had a baby. Listen, there would be no babies in the world if men had to have them. We're much worse patients than you ladies are. You have a strength in, in a lot of ways that we can't comprehend. The whole creation is groaning in labor pains. Women groan in labor pains because a baby's coming. Something wonderful is coming. But to get there, we go through this time of groaning and pain. And there are not any shortcuts to that. I mean, there's some things to help with that, praise God, these days. We had a friend who, um, I, I think I'm remembering rightly, this friend had already had one child, and now they were hanging out with this person who was touting the blessing of natural childbirth. And so this friend decided that she wanted to experience the, you know, the misery that comes through childbirth and the result of sin in the world. And all. she had all of this sort of spiritual rationale for for you know, not taking any pain medicines or, or help and just having a natural childbirth. And so she made it with that plan nine months. And the day come and she goes into labor and she had told Cindy beforehand, Cindy was really close and with her, I'm in labor. So they pick up Cindy. Cindy's with them on the way to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, a particularly hard labor pain or contraction hit. And she said, this lady, I won't mention her name, reached in the back seat and grabbed Cindy's arm almost hard enough to break it and said, I want an epidural. Even though she knew there would be an end to that pain, that pain was hard and wanted to be set free from it. We can all relate to that. But the reality is that the, the creation is laboring. And we see those labor pains in the creation. I mean, we're going through the coronavirus thing right now. Viruses and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and all of the, the misery that happens in this world. Our labor pains, our result of sin being here, yes, the misery that comes with it, but they're labor pains, they're temporary, they're pointing forward to something wonderful that's coming, which is the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, where there'll be no more 
misery. So creation is in labor. But look, Christians also groan. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit, there's no such thing as a Christian without the Spirit. Saw that earlier in chapter 8. If you, I would encourage you to go back and read it. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is believers. This is Spirit-filled believers. Look what it says about us. It says, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of son, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So as we look to the coming of Christ and know that at that point we'll be glorified, we'll be set free from all of this misery. We will have our new body then and live in a new creation where there's no sin and therefore no misery. But until then, we groan. Why? Because there's a lot of struggle and suffering that comes along with living here that touches us too. Not the direct judgment and condemnation of God on His enemies, not, not that kind of suffering, but the common misery that everybody experienced walking through a fallen world. Creation groans in labor. Believers groan in labor. And listen, if you look into the to the Greek, this is not a one-shot groaning. You know, when is my groaning going to come? Okay, check, did that. Now I can move on. No, it's a present tense verb here. It's a continual or a repeated action. It's what characterizes this life in the midst of what we've already seen are this sufferings of this present time. Those who have the Spirit continually groan as we await the coming of Christ. Those who, you know, the creation groans, we groan, right? There's suffering. There's, there's, there, we know that things shouldn't be the way they are in this world and even in our own lives and our own bodies. And God interprets that for us in His Word. So we look forward in hope to the day when Christ comes and sets us free, finishes His work in us, and glorifies us. But until then, we are groaning as we struggle with remaining sin. You know, when you come to Christ, you don't get glorified. You begin at that point growing in grace, being, having God as the master sculpture chisel away everything that doesn't look like Jesus, and a lot of that chiseling away comes through trials and struggles and suffering. Remember Joseph's life, Jesus' life, the apostles' life. We struggle with remaining sin. We struggle with the ravages of sin in the world and trials and sickness. But they testify to us, if we see this as labor pains, my suffering, that hardship, the struggle I'm going through is a labor pain that points me forward to something better coming. Christ is coming. He is on the way. So we groan. But the Spirit groans with us. Look at this. And I want to read to it. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of the Son, the redemption of everybody, which will happen when Christ comes, but we don't see that yet. We, don't, we, we, have, we hope for it. Verses 24, again, there's so much here. We, we'll deal with it another time. Verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Now watch this. Now hope that is seen is not hope. We are not in the day yet when there will be no suffering for the believer. We are in the midst of the sufferings of this present time. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, see, if we're rightly interpreting our struggles in light of God's Word and His glory and His gospel of His Son, it says if, if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. See, God has promised a day 
when he will wipe away every tear, when he will take away every sin and every accompanying misery, that, that there will be no more crying or weeping or, or disease or virus or sickness or pain. He's promised that day and he's bringing it with him. Jesus is bringing that day with him. But it's not here yet. But we have enough in the Word and we have enough in Christ to trust Him till it gets here. See, this is the Spirit-filled mindset. Not this name it and claim it mess. right? Not this belief that everybody should be rich and, and healthy. And, uh, but Spirit-filled mindset is, is interpreting the Word rightly and believing the Word and seeing what God promises. So Jesus is real with us about the suffering we face. We can walk through it in faith just like He did in the power of the Spirit, knowing that it's only labor pains. And as hard as it is, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. So we can wait in patience. We can wait for Him to come back and to set us fully free. Right now we groan, then we have glory. Bob Deffenbaugh says this about groaning. He said, groaning is a deep inward response to suffering. It's both personal and intense. An agony so deep it cannot be put into words. Groaning is a universal language. Groaning will be swallowed up by the glory of the sons of God, which is yet to come. <clears throat> For the Christian, groaning directs our hope heavenward to that which is not seen that for which we wait, our eternal home with Jesus forever in complete satisfaction and peace and glory and rest forever dwelling with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. That is coming, but it is not here yet. Till then, we groan, but we groan in hope, knowing that this is not all there is. So the first thing to remember is that suffering is a normal part of life here in this age. You struggle to hear that maybe. You certainly don't hear that a lot on TV and a lot of these other places. But even for the Christian, suffering is a normal part of life here in this age. But it's temporary. And it is working for you, believer. And it is producing Christ-likeness in you. And it is a labor pain that is testifying to you. All is not right here, but there's something better and perfect coming. So you can wait. See, the resurrection proves it's coming. And proves it's true. Christ didn't just die for our sins, and He didn't just go into the grave, but He blew the doors off the grave and came out. And He is, he is risen he is reigning, He ascended to the throne, and He is coming again someday. And all of that, even the gift of the Spirit to us is a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. Read Galatians and Ephesians. For now we groan, but we groan in hope, knowing that our suffering is temporary. Not that it's been all taken away, but that it's temporary. Secondly, hope in God because you are eternally loved. To get into even more... Oh, wait a minute. I didn't talk about the groaning of the Spirit. Look in verses 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. Anybody testify to that? Often our prayers are selfish and short-sighted and just want to get out of the struggle. 
Now, come on, I'm just being real. Maybe you can't relate to my sinfulness, you know. But, but look at this. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. You really ought to own that because that's what God's Word says. Now, we can work to pray better and in line with His will. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, look at this, with groanings. Too deep. Four words. The Spirit groans with us. God cares about His people. He loves His people. Jesus asked Paul why he was persecuting him because he was persecuting his people. But the Spirit is groaning with us and the Spirit is interceding for us and helping us. And He takes these prayers that we pray that are wrong or not fully what they should be. And look, it says, He who searches the hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit, now watch this, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit takes our prayers and cleans them up and lines them up with accord, in accord with the will of God and offers them up for us, interceding for us. God groans with us. The Spirit groans with us. The creation groans. We groan. Spirit groans. But they're labor pains and they're temporary. Yes, suffering is a normal part of this life here in this age, but not forever. And then we groan in hope because of how loved we are. Now we can move on to verse 28. I know, I feel this is going fast. I feel it with you. But I, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here this morning, and you can go back and read more thoroughly, and I'll go back someday and teach through this, Lord willing, more thoroughly. But verse 28. Now see what this is in the context of. This is, see why we need to know verse 28. Because life is hard. It's filled with struggle and suffering. And we often don't interpret that rightly. So we get help with that. In verse 28, in the light of our present struggles, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. Not all things that happen to Christians are good. Right? You think about persecution and Christians being killed because they love Christ, and that's not good. It's a violation of God's law. We're being sinned against in many ways in this world. And yet God can use all of those things and, and in His will and in His purpose, put them together and use them for good. Turn plans of that people had of destruction into plans for our blessing. It may take our life, but we win, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. In the context of living in, the, in this present suffering, we know that all of our suffering is being used by God for His glory and it will be worked together for our good because we've been called according to His purpose. And see, this is the beauty of predestination and election in God's sovereignty. It gives us security. It gives us hope. It gives us rest and peace in the midst of the storm. Like Jesus sleeping in the boat, right? It's not given to make us proud or make us win arguments. It's given to have us rest and trust in God. In verse 29, when did God start loving us? Why is there no condemnation for us? Look at this. For those whom He foreknew. And that doesn't mean He just knew about us ahead of time. That means He said His love. He, think about Old Testament meaning of no. Adam knew his wife and they had a child. This is intimate, relational love. It's knowledge, right? That knowing or that loving beforehand. For those whom He set His love on beforehand, when in eternity past, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So everything has to work towards that purpose for them. 
Remember Heidelberg Catechism last week, question one. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus, raised from the grave, we will be too. Those, now watch, those he predestined, he also called in time. And those he called, he justified, declared righteous on the basis of Jesus. Granting us faith that we might be united to Christ and, and, and justified on the basis of Christ. And look, he finishes the work. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those whom he foreknew in eternity past, those whom he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, those through the gospel he called to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And he justifies us. We are declared righteous on the basis of another, God's Son. His perfect righteous record is ours when we come to faith in Him. Our sin obliterated by Him on the cross. Satisfying justice, granting us a perfect righteousness. So now in Christ we are just, and so God declares us justified, and He will finish the work. So from eternity to eternity, he is God, and he has chosen his people. And struggle with that all you will. It's biblical teaching and, you know, interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture. Know that you can trust and love God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? But those people he set his love on, he has brought to faith in Christ. He has justified, and he will glorify them. He will take us all the way through. We are eternally loved so we can have rest in the midst of our struggle. Rest in our God who is in control, not a maverick molecule, remember the previous sermons, and who has given a people to His Son and His Son has come and accomplished redemption for those people and the Spirit applies that redemption to those people through the preaching of the gospel so that we go from death to life and turn and trust in Jesus. Yes, you must trust Jesus, but God grants that faith through the preaching of the gospel so that we Trust Him. How do I know I'm elect? Because, you're trusting, because you care. And you're trusting in God. Because you have a, if you have a perfect faith, you know you're elect. Then there are no elect. Even the weakest faith. See, faith come, true faith, faith in Jesus, this faith that submits to Jesus and, and wants to follow Him and interpret life according to His Word, that kind of trust is given by God because He loves us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, the Father's not out to get us, but the Son talked Him out. Of, and God loves us and has redeemed us and is cashing in all of our suffering to make us like His Son, and He will take us all the way all the way home. So we loved in eternity past, present, and future. We're loved by a Savior who is on the throne interceding for us. So it's not just the Holy Spirit that's interceding. Look, look at this. What shall we say then? What shall we say to these things? What things? The sufferings of this present age and the glory of the gospel that we have and have rehearsed here and God's promises to us that yes, we will go through much suffering, but He is with us and He is for us and He's using it to make us like His Son whom He sacrificed for us to call us to Himself. What shall we say to these things? Watch this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the expected answer? Nobody. Nobody can be against us if God is for us. 
He who, and I got I to go through this pretty quick. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything we need for his glory and our good to make us more like Jesus, we have even in the midst of our suffering. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That means God's chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Expected answer. No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. Now watch this. Who is at the right hand, who is on the throne, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. Present tense, continual action for us, those who believe by His grace. Now he asks a question. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Expected answer. No one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or virus, or sickness? No. No, none of it. Now, look at the reality of Scripture. And again, I feel your pain. We're moving fast, but we have to. For your sake, quoting the psalm, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice it's not saying... And this is another psalm, and that's why I'm talking about context. Believers are considered sheep to be slaughtered, killed all day long. Not that they will never suffer. Shall anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. Does suffering separate us? No. Does it mean He doesn't care? No. Does it mean the gospel is not true? No. Now watch this. This is what I wanted to get to and be sure and get to quickly. No, in all these things, now you see that these things again, what things? The sufferings of this present age and our having the gospel in the midst, being able to walk with Christ through it with faith. These things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What does it mean to be a conqueror in Christ? It means you won't have any trouble if you just claim the right verses? No. No. We see that the rest of this text obviously counteracts that. The Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. We are more than victorious through Him who loved us. New American Standard. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. The, the Net Bible. We have complete victory through Him, Jesus, who loved us and sacrificed Himself for us. The Greek there, Hooper Nikao, or Super Nike. <laughs> Maybe that's, I shouldn't say that. But to be completely. Now, this is what this word means and is what they're trying to bring out. There's a word by when it says more than conquerors. It's one word. And that word means to be completely and overwhelmingly victorious. In the midst of life's sufferings, you are overwhelmingly victorious in Jesus. In the midst of the sufferings of this present age. Because Christ has dealt with your biggest problem. He has answered for our sin. He has granted to us righteousness. He saves us as a free gift when we trust in Him. So we are victorious. 
Everything, think about this, everything that happens has to work for me now. Remember Heidelberg question one last week. Nothing can eternally harm me. It can hurt me, but even the hurt is used to chisel away things that don't look like Jesus. In Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus, even if you are weeping in the midst of your pain and trial, you are a super conqueror. Because He is a super conqueror. And we have died and we are hidden in Him. We are seated on the throne with Him, Paul says in Ephesians. But what does it mean to conquer? Does it mean to not have any trouble? No. John says this in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Okay, so how? And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, believing the gospel grants us a victorious status because we have been raised with Christ and are above, in one sense, all this in that it has to all work for us now. See, overcomers are those who trust God in the midst of difficulty, not wait till He gets them out. Overcomers are not ones who have no difficulty, but they are those who trust Jesus and live for Him now because they groan in hope. Overcomers are those who wait patiently for Him in hope because we know that nothing can separate us from His love. See, overcomers are not people who yank and claim Scriptures. Yanking Psalm 91.10 out of context and making it say what it does not say is not doing anybody a favor. It's abusing God's Word. It's turning truth into a lie. And I know that's not what you mean to do when you do that. You want to encourage people, but that, that verse has to be rightly interpreted with the rest of the Scripture. See, overcomers are, are those who, who read all of Scripture and see it in its context and, and, and interpret it in light of Christ and, and are faithful to what God teaches in all of Scripture. Overcomers are those who know and trust their God and don't expect Him to take away all difficulty in this life, but know that He will be with them through it. Overcomers are those who live for Him in the midst of their groaning, knowing something far better is coming because it is. See, we are more than conquerors for him, through Him who loved us, Paul says, and I'll read the rest in a minute. John Piper says this, he says, God is most glorified in you when you are satisfied in Him in the midst of loss and not prosperity. God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in God even in the midst of our suffering. And the gospel allows us to do it if we will hear it. If we won't use what Tim Keller called uh, satanic exegesis, I think, yanking verses out of context. I mean, if you go back and read Psalm 91, you'll see that part of that psalm is exactly what the devil tried to use against Jesus in his temptation by yanking it out of context. So we want to be careful. Let me conclude with a few thoughts here. Don't be surprised by suffering in this life. Trouble is promised. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus tells the truth. 
But it also, all of the trouble is productive for you if you are trusting in Jesus. And it's productive for the kingdom and its growth. Secondly, don't forget how immeasurably loved you are in the midst of your trial. That's why we say daily you need to be remembering the gospel, remembering who you are in Christ, remembering what Christ has done for you, remembering the truth of His Word, so that you'll know that this, this trouble is not necessarily because you have sinned against Him. Sometimes it is discipline, and we need to examine that, but it's not a blanket assurance. Don't forget how immeasurably loved you are. Look to the cross and know that. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And He gives eternal life to those who trust Him. Third, know that you are an overcomer even if you have weak faith because faith is a gift of God and He finishes what He starts. Something much better than this is coming. So let God's faithfulness fuel your faithfulness in the midst of the storm. He loved us first. It's on Him. Our salvation is a, is a work of His grace. So we can look to Him and rest in Him and know that He is with us and for us and taking us through the storm and accomplishing only good as He walks with us through it. He feels our pain. He, he cries with us. He counts our tears. He knows it's hard, but He cashes it all in because he's sovereign and in control and with us in this time of groaning. Lastly, let me say, never yank and claim. Please stop yanking verses out of context and making them say things they do not say. Always interpret Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture, in the light of the type of literature it is, the genre we call it, in the light of the whole book, in light of immediate context, so that we won't turn promises into lies when we yank them out of their context and claim them. See, you can see, if you're following along with me, and listen, I know we're skating across the surface this morning, but we've done enough skating to know it's ice. We've done enough, we've, we've done enough skating to see what's here, and that Romans 8 certainly is not promising you a trouble-free life. In fact, it's a promising you a time of groaning. It's promising you the sufferings of this present age, but it's promising you much more than that, that these sufferings are labor pains which point forward to the glory that is to come and that your Savior walks through them with you and is at work in you. Receive what the Word says. See, Romans 8 is not in conflict with Psalm 91.10 when they're both rightly understood. They're really both saying the same thing in a different side, in a different way. Romans 8 does not promise no suffering. It promises victory in the midst of suffering. And someday all of our groaning will be over. Then, when He returns, new heavens, new earth. Believer, remember, what this, what this chapter does promise you in verse 1 is no condemnation. And that's glorious. And that news is good enough to fuel us to walk through these present sufferings for His glory, knowing that He's working them for our good and being light and salt for Him all the way home. So He doesn't promise no suffering, but He does promise no condemnation because of the sacrifice of our faithful and loving and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust Him. 
rest in Him, groan with Him until He comes again and sets creation free from its groaning, believers free from their groaning, and we're all together forever in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll end by reading verses 37 to 39, and I'm done. Look in Romans 8, 37 to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, and we will experience that unless He comes, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers or demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane who said, not my will, but yours be done. May our prayers be characterized that way. Because suffering intimidates us, and, and I'm in no way comparing it to the suffering Jesus was looking forward to when he sweat drops of blood and t- suffering your wrath, do your people on the cross. But even the light and momentary affliction that we go through, which in, from our perspective is a lot of times it's very difficult. It intimidates us. It scares us. But I pray that the knowledge of you would be between us and that fear and between us and that trial, that we would look through the cross at this world and at the suffering and the groanings of the world, the sufferings of this present time, so that we can walk through with faith, knowing that you will care. You love us, you're with us, you're for us, that you're working all things together for good for those who love you by your grace, that you have set your love upon us in eternity past and you won't give up on us. And that every trial, every time we groan, it's productive in our growth in grace, is productive for your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling even now with health issues. And Lord, we always do pray according to your will, Lord, that you would grant them healing if it be your will, that you would grant them faith in the midst, that you would grant them perseverance. I pray that everyone who is struggling and listening to my voice with whatever we're groaning over, that we would learn every lesson we're supposed to learn going through it. It's okay to pray for you to deliver us from it, but when you don't, help us hear your voice. As you said to Paul, my strength, is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul, then he changed his perspective and he rejoiced in his troubles and his weakness. Help us to rejoice in you when life is easy, to rejoice in you when life is hard. Know that nothing has changed in your love for us and your purpose for us in either one. Help us to rest in you and trust in you. May there be a difference in our lives in the way that we go through suffering versus those who don't know you. And may you use us as light and salt to tell others of this glorious good news of this glorious Savior who has conquered for us, who is conquering in us, who is conquering through us. Help us to believe, having faith in Jesus, having the gospel as a reality, Having salvation, being co-heirs with Christ means even in the midst of our suffering, we are super conquerors 
in him. Lord, we love and trust you. We pray that you would save those who are not trusting you this morning and that you'd grow the rest of us in grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.